Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey, there's the good-looking guy. How are you, Greg? Good to see you. I wasn't sure if you were talking about me or, or our guest for today, but I'll take uh, any compliments I can get these days. <laughs> How are you, Matt? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, that's double entendre. I'll take that. Things are well. Things are well. We're in the, the, the throes of summer. Um, yeah, the kids are in summer camp and, and you know having a ball, playing around in the pool, and actually had some breakthroughs on the, on the swim lessons the last few weeks. And uh, uh, our oldest is finally really comfortable in her skills to be able to, to traverse the whole pool now. So she's swimming the deep end, diving, you know, uh, cannonballs, all that kind of stuff. So it's nice to see that. And um, yeah, actually, I guess at this point, we're almost getting ready to send the kids back to school. And and then most people don't know, but I work on a in a higher education setting. So at that point, we're also, you know, starting to welcome back students, you know, uh, uh, to campus as well. So the, the end of summer feels like this big back to school push for me, both personally and, and on the, on the work front as well. Man, I know what you mean. Um, it, my, I literally, the reason I was a little bit late getting on here today is I was picking up my daughter from her kind of uh, freshman orientation. I guess that's what they still call it, you know, for, for her first year of college, she's starting. So I have a, an incoming college freshman and then a senior and I'm like where 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 does the time go i feel like i'm in free fall yeah yeah i bet it's like a never ending like spiral in some ways but uh there's always light yeah. at the end of the tunnel i'll tell you i'm 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 losing a battle with the squirrels at the house we have a, a lemon tree and a, like a tangelo tree and the squirrels are devouring these tangelos which on surface is fine but they leave all the cleanup to me and so, you know, this tree is, is fully bloomed and every day I'm just finding like dozens and dozens of, you know, fully, fully devoured, you know, fruits and citruses and, and, and <laughs> oranges and citrus are not nice when they leave out in the, in the sun and kind of bake onto the, uh, you know, the patio surface. So, uh, yeah, I'm losing a battle with the squirrels, but otherwise I'm, I'm hanging in. Oh man, I've been to your house. I've seen there's a thousand pieces of fruit on that tree and that must be an awful mess. So I feel you. It's terrible. Anyway. Well, hey, dude, let's, um, we could kind of small talk for a while and catch up because I didn't see you on the last episode, but um, let us just dive right into this because we are joined with a, we are joined by, sorry, uh, what I think is going to be a super cool guest. This is an amazing get, I'm making the air quotes, get, right? That's <laughs> Hollywood speak. Uh, we have with us today, really none other than, I mean, the guy's a legend in, on Instagram. It is super doc, RJ, comma. RJ, Dr. RJ, Doc, help me with this. Is it Kamatovic? Kamatovic, yeah. Kamatovic, thank Close you. Enough. Oh, I knew it. I, uh, all right, we're, we're two minutes in and I already messed it up. But yeah, uh, so you probably know him if you're listening to this and you're in the watch world. You probably know this guy's feed. Super Doc, RJ, comma, um, featured on Hodinkee. Huge, huge, amazing collection of like phenomenal 
just banger watches. The guy's got like an, an unreal collection of modern watches, Grand Seiko, Omega, all that stuff. We're going to talk about that. But also of interest to us is the fact that I, without kind of, I don't want to mischaracterize anything, RJ, but you know, you strike us as being a real, like a, a bon vivant, you know, you seem like you travel, you've uh, got kind of a, a love for life and Certainly that includes kind of the, the adult beverage and spirits world. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today too. So without further ado, it's RJ. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what this are you guys drinking tonight? What's in the glass? Like, oh, okay. Well, I tell you what, work? I will start. I'm, I'm two fisting because it's, it's quite hot here today. And I was actually grilling early and uh, I have the dregs of a beer going. But what I poured myself for this this particular kind of call is uh, this is a white Cote Rhone. So this is oh boy, uh, this is a parent. So this is if you know um, like uh, Chateau du Beaucastel, that you know pretty pretty popular Chateau Neuf de Pop producer in the south of France, and this is sort of a essentially their um, kind of mid grade white table wine. So this is going to be probably a Grenache Blanc Viognier blend, and it, it's super accessible. Um, ABV is nothing crazy, and it is just—it's a nice break from stuff like Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc that we get bombarded with in California. So <laughs> this is a good hot weather white wine. That is what is in the glass. How about you? What have you got? I, well, it's much later up here, so I'm I'm closing down the the evening after a rough day. So I've actually, I have two pours. I have the, the Classe Azul Repasado. And then um, as we move on, I've got the, the Grand Mayan. So the uh, Ultra Aged Extra Anejo, which um, is an interesting, interesting tequila, which I haven't tried in a while. So we'll see how it holds up. I've never felt tequila really benefits that much from aging, but we'll see how... Uh, how the podcast goes, Those <laughs> how are much two, we get through. Yeah, that's right. Those are two fascinating pours. That looks like the big bottle too. Is that the the one uh, over a liter? Is that the big the big no, class that's the, it's the standard size. That's okay. just 750 milliliters, which is getting really hard to find, at least where we are. And, it is. And price-wise has been the, the greatest inflationary rise of anything. Never mind gas and food. Well, we're talking tequila, tequila here. <laughs> uh, almost twice what it was not too long ago. No kidding. I, I've seen the prices on that. I mean, they're they're approaching at least in uh, U.S. You know, two hundred, and I think that's a that's a significant markup from just you know three to five years ago. Yeah, when nobody cared about tequila. That's right. That's right. And you have two two <laughs> bottles there that are quite um, you know, quite beautiful bottles too. And, and uh, I think that draws people in sometimes as well, sort of the, the presentation. And, and so I think especially one of those, but both of those are striking presentations. Yeah. They're all hand, hand painted, which um, always make you wonder. I, t I toured the Blanton factory one time in Kentucky and they were making the um, obviously Blanton bourbon. And so they're doing their, their special release with a little jockey on top. And as a bottle comes out, they hand write in, amazing calligraphy on the on the label the date and, and the batch number so we're watching these we're watching these guys come through so when you're when you're there as a guest and touring it's like disneyland is the greatest thing on earth so you see them come down and <laughs> seeing this guy writing perfect calligraphy 
I say, wow, you've got such a cool job. And he looks up and goes, I wish I was dead. And then he, <laughs> and then he continues to write in like beautiful cursive, batch number 36. It's like, well, maybe not as romantic. Now I think about these hand painting and hand finished bottles. There's probably some disgruntled Mexican somewhere wishing he was anywhere else. Just putting these. Oh, man, your ass is always greener, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it reminds you, too, just the, the stories that, you know, end up uh, uh, the uh, getting passed along to us, you know, uh, from, as a consumer. You know, it doesn't, yeah. might not always match up. Yeah, <laughs> his romantic image, but uh, <laughs> not always the case. I'm going to bring yeah, it yeah. home. I actually, I was thinking about everybody today as I was, and as I grabbed this, and it was timely because it just arrived. So I have, um, uh, it's a the Mezcal subscription that I that I uh, support, and um, I've mentioned it a few times on the show. It's called Magay Me Latte. They're bo- based out of Oaxaca, and it's a uh, an expat over there. But he's on the boot on the ground, you know, boots on the ground, sort of sourcing uh, mezcal, mo- almost entirely mezcal from producers that are usually under the radar. Some of them might be affiliated with a brand, or uh, but most of them are sort of you know under the radar and maybe only in the know by a few folks or in their communities. But this one is sort of divisive, I think, in, in Mezcal, but it matches exactly what RJ's got in the glass, too. This is a, a Reposado, so a Mezcal Reposado. Um, this is from Matatlan, which is sort of the you know Mezcal cop- capital of the world, right? Most most of the Mezcal comes from there, and most of the Mezcal is is an Espadín Mezcal as well. And this one was rested for eight months in, in barrels. They did, you know, the producer didn't know what kind of barrels they were. They've been in the family for generations. But I think the interesting part about this is that, you know, people thought that maybe Mezcal, Reposado and Añejos were sort of jumping on the tequila and the brown spirits wagon and trying to attract sort of this wider, uh, maybe newer base of, of consumers. And as they talked about this bottle in particular, really what they learned too is that might be the case for some brands. Um, but if you go back for generations, they actually transported Mezcal and stored it in barrels just as a logistical solution. And so there was this, there's a sort of history of, of, of storing mezcal in barrels purely for logistical reasons, and then enjoying it. And then you talk to some of the producers and their families actually enjoy the age spirit even more than, than, you know, what they would call the Hoven, the young or the, the Blanco. So it's just an interesting sort of case study and sort of what you think about aged mezcal. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's really delicious. It's like drinking a, a light reposado with that hint of sort of smoky saltiness. You know, I hate to say smoky because it's the default, you know, adjective for, for mezcal, but you catch it there. So it's, it's nice. It's good. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't quite developed an appreciation for mezcal. I don't know. Still too much ash in, in most of the ones I've tried, but yeah, so I, I to just I, keep trying. I think so. And that's, uh, that's, I think typical in a lot of ways, especially when you're sort of, you know, delving into it. And I think there's places we'll go, we'll get into it offline and say, Hey, keep an eye out for this or keep an eye out for this. And it'll give you different profiles and, you know, maybe find your way. Well, Hey, I want to interject real quick. Cause I have a question. At least that brings up for me. Cause the one time I remember maybe two times, but the one time I can remember hearing you on another podcast, RJ, you were on sort of a, a I wouldn't say a sister podcast, but a, a podcast that we collaborate with, right. With whiskey and watches and Sandy. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that makes me wonder, cause I'm kind of like you, I, I like mezcal in, small doses because of that, that characteristic sort of phenolic kind of marine rubber, I think is the way I've heard it described is a little off putting for me, although I like it in some cocktails and stuff. Um, do you, when it comes to scotch, do you like stuff like Lagavulin, the really peaty, salty, smoky stuff or, 
or do you I, go more Highland? Yeah, I, I'm more Speyside primarily. And, and the thing with like a, a heavily peated Isla Scotch is I can appreciate it. I don't love it because it's not a taste profile that is, is especially pleasing, but it's just amazing the, the flavors that, that you get out of that process. And that's the funny thing when, when you start to compare tequila, because with scotch, like Sandy, uh, his the master blender over at Chivas and whiskey blender dude on, on Instagram, he'll tell you it's, it's all about barrel selection. And so the flavors are all dependent on exposure to the barrel and the types of barrels and how long in the barrel. And, and with tequila, they don't even tell you what barrels are used. There's no real age statement. It's repasado if it's two months to a day minus a year. Everything else is aged. If it's more than three years, it's ultra age. So there's all this like secrecy about it. And so you'd think that barrel selection should should play an important role. But it's uh, it's funny how they're trying to catch a little bit of the, the scotch trend and give people more things to talk about. But I think the recipes and the master blending is just not quite there with tequila. Plus with tequila, the, the agave plant has its own flavor that you don't want to overpower. With, with scotch, alcohol is flavorless. And so if you didn't expose it to the barrel, you would have just vodka. So it's um, it is just like comparing apples and oranges. So it's funny to see that tequila trying to create a paradigm of appreciation that they're just borrowing from, from the scotch world. But I, I think my tastes as far as scotch go more Speyside because of that, that fruity caramel butterscotch banana bread flavor. But like Sandy will tell you that the limits with a single malt is unless you age a Glenlivet in Isla casks, which they've done, you can't get the smoke. You can't get any of those other flavors. So a nice blend is um, as long as they're using quality malts. I, um, I actually like Shivas a lot because you can bring in a little bit of smoke by borrowing from um, some of the other distilleries that you wouldn't be able to create. So it's where the, the master blenders will tell you blends are, are the chance to, to show the artistry. And I think single models have become a, a marketing mechanism. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Age statements too. You know, it seems like that's become easily a marketing mechanism as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I, I think you're right on the tequila side. You know, quite frankly, I think um, you know Blanco is your best bet. Like the agave has such pronounced and natural and unique flavors that you're best to sort of just let it shine. Mm. And then there are folks who would probably consider themselves master blenders on the tequila side, and I think that's few and far between. But um, yeah, I think it's a pretty accurate assessment. I think the uh, the azul is the perfect repasado, though. It's uh, it's just I mean, there's just enough that you get some chocolatey tones in there, but you still taste the agave. So I've never I mean, azul is still my number one tequila, even at, at other price points that I've tried. And and the the azul mezcal, I'm not a huge fan of, but I think that's just too much too much ash. Yeah, yeah, I haven't had that one, and uh, I would say the uh, azul is probably one that has hooked a lot of people. You know, I remember specifically, you know, a while, long time ago, that was sort of this, uh, like, uh, aspirate, like when I finally find it or when I finally try it, try it, it's going to be, you know, you know, my, uh, life changing. And, um, you know, I think it's one of those ones that grabs people and pulls them into the category too. Yeah. It's like a Nautilus. 
It's their entry level. <laughs> it's just the gateway into the brand. <laughs> That's right. Aye, aye, aye. Well, hey, we're, we're about 15 minutes into a watch podcast. And speaking of Nautilus, what, what is on your wrist today, RJ? Oh, I just, uh, this, this is just a Breitling uh, Chronomat, two tone, uh, just at work slugging it out on the front line today. So just had a sporty, uh, sporty beater on. But Breitling, I've actually in the last year, I've gotten pretty keen on Breitling because uh, I think I've added three in the last year. And I think that George Kern has done amazing things with the brand. And when he first started, I had no idea what to expect. And, and the rumors throughout was that he wasn't really into it with his heart. He had a five-year contract and plan. And his job was just to bring it up to a point where they could sell it or or do something with it. I think somewhere along the way, he probably fell in love with Breitling. Because you see the, the typical George Kern things he did, like um, he surrounds himself with celebrities because I think he likes that lifestyle and he wants to walk the red carpet with them. And the first few years on, under um, of, him, of Breitling under him was all about just him surrounding himself with celebrities. And then he took the wings off the, the logo and did some questionable things. And whether it was all part of this master plan or whether somewhere along the way he found his footing, I think they're putting out fantastic pieces and at, at really aggressive price points, especially at a time where when things got crazy, Breitling still represented fantastic value. And, and you, you know, even on the, the secondary market or even at, at retail, you could get discounts. And then at a discounted price, it was even that much better. So I think they, um, in the last little while, really took advantage of the the people having to look elsewhere for alternatives to Rolex, and they um, they really rose to the occasion. Yeah, you're right. I think uh, you know they've got. I think Breitling's been getting some really nice shine lately, and deservedly. You know, to your point, um, this is a second episode now where we had a you know the guest uh, uh, wrist check a Breitling Mike Stockton had on the new Super Ocean uh, last week when you talked to him. And I went to the boutique, you know, a little while ago to check them out too. And I, I thought those were fantastic. So I, I agree. Everything, almost everything they're putting out right now, I'm like stamp of approval. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it, still, I could see that being an exit watch for me would be like, you know, a, uh, a, a full gold Navitimer. Well, I think they're check. one hot watch away. Yeah. They're one hot watch away from really exploding. You know, if, if the days of hot watch are still, still around, in a bigger sense. I mean, they've always been there, you know, when this was a niche culture and, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't about flexing or collecting or investing, but, um, you know, I think they're one hot watch away from, they, they just, they need a halo piece, which they don't yet have. And that'll draw more people into the brand. What that might look like is hard to say. <laughs> I think they're desperately trying because they keep pulling elements of hot watches from other brands <laughs> and they've got their, their ice blue dial and then they've yeah. got their Tiffany blue and they keep, they keep trying. I'm not sure what it'll be, but they're, they're one watch away from really um, upsetting the hierarchy. Well, it seems like so much of what they've released over the past two years have been phenomenal, but it's just, you know, the, I don't know what it is. I don't even, I don't like baseball. I don't play baseball, but all the baseball analogies in the past few episodes, Greg, but this is, you know, like the, uh, you know, ground rule, double, triple, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, just maybe, maybe not quite the home run. You know, the kind of thing that it becomes like a transcendent piece where, yeah, uh, it it becomes a cultural phenomenon, and, and then, it's you that know, was on the Rolex strategy though. 
Rolex was all about get on base. And then out of nowhere, it did took on this life of its own. But that slow and steady, just mainstream, accessible, you know, a, a mass appeal has been the Rolex strategy. They just invested more than any other brand combined in the marketing. Yeah. But the marketing wasn't to create an exclusive Veblen piece that only the elite could get. The marketing was to make sure that if you wanted to commemorate something special, you wouldn't think of any other way but to buy a Rolex. And I think with with Rolex, every it's funny now as as the market is starting to soften on watches and resale and, and flipping, uh, those who are probably um, in deep and, and in trouble are trying very hard to maintain this idea that Rolex will do things to to preserve the resale value. But Rolex is not interested in that at all. I mean, their their profit is maxed out as soon as the watch leaves Switzerland. It doesn't matter what the end user gets for it. And Rolex doesn't care about being the resale watch that netted its buyer 100%. They want that watch that your father celebrated his 50th birthday with. You want that watch that your mother gave to your father on the anniversary, and then that watch is going to be yours. And if not that specific watch, one that you can then buy 20 years later that looks very close to the one he's wearing. They want that generational uh, customer because they want to keep making watches for the next hundred years. They don't care about being flex worthy or hot on Instagram. So they're not going to change their strategy for a minute. They, they've been doing this a while. They don't care about the gray dealers who are selling the, uh, the Daytonas for twice list price. So it's funny now to see the desperation in some of these guys who, um, trying to start rumors about discontinuation and the Batman's going to be discontinued and Rolex is going to restrict supply because they want to keep uh, its supply and demand ratio. So it's funny now to see all these, um, these acts of desperation. I think it'll be interesting in the coming months as the first domino starts to fall to see who actually loves watches and, and who was in it for the, uh, the quick flip. Yeah. I've, I've noticed Greg, um, a local gray and I'll tell you back channel, but you know, a local reputable gray dealer where I'm, I'm looking at some prices of things that I just, I look at his site like every week and I've, I've noticed some, I would say significant softening in the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you're probably right, RJ. It'll, it will be interesting to see what, Hey, I've got, um, a question. Well, here, wait, let's finish our wrist check. Greg, what have you got? I've got a Omega DeVille Prestige. Uh, this is the Tonneau case version. Um, I think most people, if they've seen any, it's so it's late ni- late nineties, early two thousands. If they've seen this one, it's usually like the really cool salmon dial jump hour, which is like, a, if I understand it correctly, the only jump hour movement that Omega has um, put out. Um, and uh, but this is really cool. Um, I've got it on an orange uh, Delug strap right now, so it's super summery got sort of the you know the yellow cold yellow gold vibes and summer coolness and uh i just love this watch it's fun um as for some reason i was thinking of rj when i put it on this morning i was like you know what kind of a gold omega might 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 hit home so yeah dude you could do worse (laughs) right on well i think i am last and i um i actually got home late enough that i didn't have an opportunity to really like uh uh think about anything and, and pick something, but this is just actually kind of a perfect everyday watch. And this is in part why I got it. So this is the, the Weiss 
38 millimeter, the hand wound, so not the automatic in his sort of signature latte dial. Um, really stoked about the announcement that he's going to have that agave dial. I think that's, I'd be curious to find out if those are already gone. I mean, they, you know, I think he only made 25 of them. The first batch did go. Yeah. Yeah. The 42 millimeter. And so this is the smaller one and looking forward to getting one of those knock wood. Um, yeah, I, I too thought this morning, like, okay, what am I going to put on? Cause I want something interesting, right. For RJ. So wait, wait, let me ask you, RJ, do you have a Shunbun Grand Seiko now? Did I, am I right that you got one of the, um, the cherry blossom? The cherry blossom. Yeah. Yeah. The Sakura dial. Yeah. So yeah, I, which is, I was going to do me. that, but yeah. I've got to adjust it. <laughs> the heat's catching up to you. It is. It is. I got to put it back on a strap. That's the only thing about those. There's no, no adjustability in that bracelet. So yeah, what are you going to yeah, do? You don't realize how valuable that is an on the fly, quick adjust. So especially in the, in the summer, it's amazing how much you risk and swell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did chips and salsa yesterday, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of salty. It's hot. And I, I did lift this morning, yeah. you know, so um, and I'm just, you know, I just, I can't get my watch on. I'm so ripped. Well, that's anyway. Tough, that's tough being so swole. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Dude, right. Right. <laughs> hey man, six and three quarters. <laughs> Don't you forget that three quarters. Well, um, so RJ, I've got, this is kind of a blunt question. Uh, this is probably the first sort of watch related question. I suspect that I know how you feel about this, but I'm curious to see how your answer aligns with my imagination. Cause I think we, you probably, well, I won't even, you know, uh, uh, prejudice your answer by giving you any kind of clue. Do you see yourself as an influencer? No, well, I actually hate that term because it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. For me, these are people who feel they have power to manipulate. I don't know. I, I, I kind of hate that term because it, it's like a, an advertisement of your ability to sell people shit. And and I would never want to be associated with something like that. And so, you know, I, I like to think that when people ask me for, for advice, they will take my advice with some consideration and, and value it. And it might influence their decision because it's bound in rational uh, logic or, or because I, I make sense or based on my experience that they'll give it some, some consideration. So I think that, you know, I've, I've influenced a lot of people in decisions when they send direct messages, I'm getting married. What would you say? I, I have this budget. What watches would you recommend? But the, the social media influencer for me is like a disingenuous shill. <laughs> and so I like, for me, whenever I hear that term, I think the disingenuous shill who would just post anything for the sake of whoever's sponsoring it. So, and I think that there's a lot of, a lot of that actually in well, I mean, all over social media, but I think that people who, who say they're influencers are, you know, artists in, trying to manipulate or playing off whatever following they have and then completely betraying it. So I, um, yeah, I, I hope not. <laughs> I hope I'm not, I'm not an influencer. And, and that's how you, you get some of these where they send you watches quite a bit. And, and I, you know, I just love watches. So they'll ask you want, she wants to send you a watch. I'm sure I want to see and try as many watches 
but I'll say if I think it's shit, I'm not going to take pictures of it. I'm not going to post it. I, I won't endorse it. And some of them are a lot of fun and, and I'll put them up there and then, and then send them back. But uh, I'd never want to be a shill for anything. And sometimes I worry like with some brands that I really love, like Grand Seiko, that at some point <laughs> maybe I should tone it down a bit so that it doesn't come off that way. But sometimes when you really love something, you, you, you gush about it. <laughs> so it's, it's tough because you never know what the perception might be. But uh, yeah, I hope I'm not in the class of other influencers who are just peddle anything that, uh, that they're given for free. You know, I, uh, I saw, uh, somebody put a post uh, today and I think they, they had referenced you and said, you know, keep uh, kind of social media fun, you know, and, and everyone's been ha- kind of haranguing on Instagram and social media for good reason. Uh, yeah. you know, not as much exposure to the accounts that you like to follow the algorithms, what are they prioritizing, you know, and, and it was sort of this, this post was sort of like, Hey, keep, you know, supporting our friends, our community, visit their pages, comment, tag, like all these things. And, and you were referenced as somebody who I think is, you know, one of the authentic accounts that they appreciated. So I think it speaks to what you're kind of commenting on now. And I don't want to go too far down the social media rabbit hole, but what, what thoughts do you have on what Instagram is versus what it was when you started? Uh, you know, it's, it's t- like, for me, it's always just been a stress release. And so it's funny how it's taken on this, <laughs> this amazing life because it. um, you know, I was actually a, an art major in studio art, so I, I used to paint as as a stress release, and now I just don't have the time. So photography has kind of taken over that, and the kids won't let me take pictures of them anymore, and <laughs> pictures of the wife are inappropriate to post. But, um, <laughs> it's, uh, so, so I take pictures of, of the watches, and so it's been you know part of that stress release to have some quiet time. You you take a photo. You, you put it up on Photoshop and you edit it a bit and then, then you put it up there. And so it's been, um, you know, just that, that effort to, to decompress. And so for me, that's, that's all it's been. The, the fantastic part is the, the connections that you make from people across the world, like Sandy in, in Scotland. And all of a sudden, you know, these would have been pen pals back in the day and you'd have to wait weeks for a letter to arrive. And now you can instant message and get on a chat and uh, do a a video call. So the way it's connected people has been amazing, which is, I think, still the the best part about it. And and when you think about how big the watch world seems right now, it's still a a microcosm. And if you take social media out of the equation, there's very few people in your circle who care at all about watches. And if you try to talk to them about watches, they'll, they'll quickly try to change the subject. So it's amazing that it's, it's brought us all together. And we have this, this community where we're not strange guys who like watches, <laughs> you know, we're all one of many. So that, that's what I, I love about it. The, it is frustrating with some of the algorithm and whatnot, because some people you lose touch with and you used to engage with their accounts quite a bit. So you just wonder what, Instagram's doing, if they really say that they want to keep you connected, then there's, there's a failure in their algorithm because I've lost touch with, with accounts that unless you actively go out and find and then start to re-engage, they won't show you content. Yeah, I agree with you on that. All of a sudden you're, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I haven't seen, you know, XYZ person in, in a minute and maybe something pops up or somebody else tags him and you go to the page and you're like, oh my, we're, we're, I haven't seen any of this. We're, yeah. we're, we used to talk all the time. Well, yeah, case in point, I think um, I went and 
just checked out your feed this morning, RJ, and saw probably a half a dozen things that I hadn't seen in the past. It, well, basically from July. And it, I kind of was just going backwards. And I think the the algorithm had shown me one of your posts in the past maybe three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, you know, that's, and I've, as you say, you know, it's not like we're good buddies or anything, but, you know, I, I like and comment on your stuff and it's just, uh, an odd phenomenon. So yeah, you're, I think you're onto something, but you're exactly right. I think, um, Instagram or, or any of these things is at its best when you think of it as a, as kind of a communication tool, an opportunity to kind of look into very niche specific things of other people's lives that kind of are impact your own in a good way. And in every other respect, it's probably eh, not the greatest thing for us, but, um, (laughs) as a watch hobbyist, it's been pretty great. And I think your, your analogy regarding Sandy is perfect. You know, this, this, I, as a, as somebody who's old enough to have had like honest to God pen pals in the eighties, you know, (laughs) seventies and eighties, like that was a thing, you know, kids would get hooked up around the world, you know, and, um, that's what this is at its best. So yeah. good point. I had, a, I get, I had an Italian pen pal in fifth grade. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's dangerous though. Like the exposure to brand, like I've got this micro brand fetish right now, which um, would never have existed. <laughs> and, and they're doing amazing things. And I think um, that's keeping the, the collecting fun because right now I've, I've reached, but I've actually consolidated the collection quite a bit in the last little while. Cause it was just, getting out of hand, but, um, then I'm reaching a point now where now a a watch has to be really something for me to want to reach into my pocket and buy. Uh, I've learned, there's been a few things over the last year and a bit. I've gotten over the fear of missing out because brands have consistently shown me that it's an unfounded fear, especially Grand Seiko. That was, that was the worst. Every, uh, limited edition and that's a gorgeous dial and, oh, I might miss out. I have to get it. And then three months later, there's an identical dial in, in a different case. So they've, they've cured me of FOMO. And then um, just, you know, I used to every watch, if I loved it, I like bought it. And then realizing that I, you know, I like that watch, it's, it's beautiful, but I never wear it. So I've gotten over that, that need to buy every watch that I, that I like. So now I'm at a point where, you know, it has to be really something special, but uh, I still love the, the variety and the newness of, of a watch. So, so some of these micros, it's great that you get some of these designs that you don't want to spend $15,000 for. And so a few hundred bucks and, and you've got something that, that scratches that itch. And, and these are things you would have never discovered otherwise. That's an interesting, you know, segue. I, I was curious, you know, how your taste had changed. I think you really just described it. You know, I've seen it a little bit in the feed too, and sort of what your interests are and what your passions are. And so, you know, I think in this instance, you know, social media was quite helpful in that way because otherwise it would have been nearly impossible to, you know, connect with some of these brands or see their designs or, or what have you. Yeah. And, and they've allowed me to then hunt whales because before it's amazing. All those, um, those mid tier phenomenal watches, but, um, you know, that, that like Aquaterra level you know, fantastic watches, but four Aquateras in, you miss out on a, <laughs> on a full gold piece that, that you could have had. So it's, uh, I'm sh- it's shifting a little bit that way. I, I like to have some of the casual sporty watches, but now it's more like watches that 
uh, have, have greater significance and, and speak to me on different levels. Plus your tastes change. I remember I was all in on the big watch phase and now they're largely unwearable. They're bigger than, than <laughs> some of my current <laughs> big watches. But, but uh, yeah, so everything, it's funny to watch these trends come and go. That's why when you, when you see them, you know, after you've been around a bit, you know what's coming. And so it's easier to just step back and not get sucked in. Uh, you know, like the, uh, the ballooning prices and, and the Tiffany dial stuff. And, you know, it's, uh, you see all these, these trends take off and you, you realize that they don't have much staying power because it's, it's been done before and it didn't last the first time around. Yeah. Going back, I, I think, uh, and I, by the way, I absolutely feel you with respect to the, the Grand Seiko thing. Cause that's the, I don't, that is poison to my mind is to, to think of all the amazing things that they drop. And it's just like, oh my God, oh my God. And at some point it's like, you realize, no, wait, it's just, there's always going to be another phenomenal GS dial. I just got to, you know, stop, you know, evict it from the imagination and that kind of thing. But to get back to the, the influencer thing, I agree with you. I mean, I, I would not call you an influencer either. I just wanted to be slightly provocative. But I think to the extent that you are, it's in, in the best possible way is um, I think you give permission for people who are in an aspirational place, maybe the kind of the, the midpoint or maybe just to the left on the timeline of the midpoint of their their watch enthusiasm timeline. It it your feed and your your feedback to people does kind of give an audience tacit permission to enjoy and experience things that you know they don't have to chase you know the big crazy stuff there's a lot of great micros i seem to recall you have a pretty you know healthy enthusiasm for seiko yeah minus minus the word grand yeah um yeah. You know, and that's, I think, one of the best and healthiest things about a feed like yours is that, um, you know, people who are kind of outsiders looking in are like, man, this, this dude's got all, all this stuff, but, you know, look at the, look at the turtle, look at the, you know, fill in the blank. Um, well, I confess I can I picture it in my head, <laughs> but well, the, the, the micros. Collecting. And, and this is what I find the, the great irony is because a lot of the brands, are, you know, they, they take this exclusionary approach and that, you know, it's an exclusive club. And, and what I love about our community is that it's so inclusive. You know, it's not about what you spend or what you have. It's, it's how much you appreciate it. And what I've always loved about Seiko is, is how much they give you to be proud of. If that's the extent of what, what you can buy. And, and, you know, I always bought the best watch I could. And I remember when I was in med school and, and starving and, and broke, it was a fossil, but um, it was, you know, it was, it was what I could afford. And then you, you compare and then you cherish it on your wrist. So it was all about whether you appreciate what it means to you. And that's what I love about the culture because the brands are trying to sell this fantasy lifestyle and this exclusionary idea that, um, you know, only, only the elite can have it. And yet we're all, so welcoming to anyone who just loves watches. Seiko, um, as a brand, I'm, I'm not so sure where they're going and, and, and the confusion because I think what a lot of people really loved was how much value for dollar there was and how much they give you at, at the price points. And now they're 
they're going up market a bit and the Seiko Lux and the prospects and they're starting to blur the lines with Grand Seiko. And uh, you just wonder as a strategy what their what their long game is or what they're trying to accomplish. But uh, we'll see how that plays out. I still, you know, for me with, with Grand Seiko, it took the logo change for me to jump in because it was, Grand Seiko had been making waves among the collector community for a while, but it was at a point where I just couldn't spend that much on on watch that had Seiko <laughs> across the front. Because as much as I loved Seiko, Seiko was not an $8,000 watch. So, you know, as, as shameful it is to admit that that logo bias <laughs> was a big barrier for me to, to jump into the Grand Seiko pool. And so now that Seiko is trying to do that with their, their regular brand and bring regular Seikos up to 5,000 plus, uh, I'm just not sure where they're going. But we'll see. I mean, there could be a huge market for it. I'll join you in that, in admitting that. I think, you know, I don't own a Grand Seiko, but I've been sort of eyeing a few over the years. And and quite frankly, until that logo change, that was, that was the, that was a huge barrier for me. And I think that, I think more people would probably, you know, admit that too, if you were having just a kind of candid conversation. And I know there's people that love the the double signed, you know, because yeah. there's some charm to that and there's a history and sort of, like you said, the enthusiast community was rallying behind it before that. But um, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one, actually. Yeah, it's um, not sure other brands, because right now, the last little while, it's funny because it's been <laughs> the whole Rolex phenomenon has been <laughs> has been so interesting. And uh, I think that it's it's opened the door for other brands. Uh, the hard part is then they, they raise the expectation from a, a seller that everything was was valuable. And I'm looking forward to the next few months and it being a, a buyer's market. But that's what in the last little while, like I said, I got into to Breitling and Breguet, too, is uh, a brand that's just so, you know, woefully and, and shamefully undervalued and respected. And, and this is a brand that should have should be involved in every conversation. And people are I still don't understand how AP is up there with with Patek in the conversation and then people are throwing Rolex in there in the conversation. And if you want to talk about watchmaking, how, how anyone could ignore Breguet and it's, it's just shocking how, um, how undervalued they are. And so, so for someone who's, who's seeking that out, uh, I said, I just picked up three Breguet in the, in the last year. Some of them was just because the, the deal <laughs> was one that I felt that it was worth, worth buying just to talk about the deal alone <laughs> because like these are things that were you know 30% retail and and precious metal and it's it's amazing but for whatever reason it's not flex worthy <laughs> and so it's uh it's it's gotten no traction i think Matt just throughout his show notes he he, he, he you get <laughs> uh, yeah. exactly what he was hoping you might so I, I did, um, I sent a message to Greg a few days ago, you know, with a couple, like just a thumbnail sketch of some questions I wanted to ask you or topics I wanted to cover down on. And one of them was, why doesn't Breguet get like the love that the Trinity gets and how, yeah. how, how could, how could the brand change that? Number one, should they change it? I mean, for, my other brand that I love, that's kind of in that same orbit doesn't have that maybe the same name as Breguet, but I'm a Blancpain guy. Yeah. And on the one hand, it vexes me that the rest of the community does not appreciate that brand. On the other hand, I'm like, you all just keep being yeah. ignorant. You yeah. stay over yeah. there in your cone of silence and you just don't, don't pee in my Blanc Pond <laughs> pool. 
And maybe we should hope for the same for Breguet because that's a brand that I really like. And I, I have not dipped my toe in that water, but that's going to happen. And yeah. I, I was curious to get your thoughts. And I, I went all shit over here when you started were, talking about it. If they were part of Richemont or if they were independent, they would absolutely be where they would need to be. And I think the problem at Swatch is the Hayex. And apparently, like when I was big with Omega and, and traveling and got to know, like when Stephen Urquhart was uh, was president and got to know him on a, a more personal level, um, apparently it's it's a it's a rough scene there. It's like the old Holy Roman Empire, and you've got the uh, the female Hayek and, and the son Hayek, and it's it's um, they've got their own teams and branches and and their own favorites based on either who the CEO is or brands that they just particularly like. And there's some brands they don't care about at all. And I think Breguet is one of them. And so they're just not invested in it. Uh, rumors now, the next thing with uh, Blancpain is they're going to do a swatch 50 fathoms. <laughs> so they might be trying to either help Blancpain that way or just help continue to sell swatches. But I think that they don't know what to do with a brand like Breguet. And even when I was, um, it's an interesting strategy too, because when um, when I, was, I remember talking to, to Stephen Urquhart and at a point in my collecting where I was so in love with Omega, I didn't want to buy anything else. And I said, I'm running out of things to buy and I want a annual calendar or a minute repeater or, or you know, look at the archives, look at what Omega has put out in the past. Why can't you do this annual calendar, moon phase, day, date, month? And he said, that is Blanc Pound's face now. And so they won't let any of their brands compete with each other. And so they, they hold to that strategy, which came from the old Hayek when he was first resurrecting Swatch Group. And for whatever reason, they won't waver and let one brand step on another brand's toes. And yet they still don't know what to do with those brands. And you'd think they would be better served to just take that and give it to one of their flagships or, or just go all in and promoting that brand if they think it's, it's worth preserving. But I think they, they really just honestly don't know what to do with it. And they're not interested in investing and and marketing or, or even trying. Because the products are amazing. It's just no marketing. So it's uh, it's be curious to see what Brigway does. I'd love to see uh, another brand take them over. Whereas Richemont just kind of lets each brand do their own thing as opposed to trying to micromanage from the top. My other theory to throw at you guys too is, is I think for in my opinion, for a long time, that style, the classic dress style, I don't think was favored, right? Everything was stainless steel sports, stainless steel sports. And and all of a sudden, I think, in my opinion, I think there's a little bit of a, a reversal now where sort of the, the brigade styling is actually is, is back in vogue. And I think you're seeing it when other brands that are, you know, bringing that into there, but brigade's always done it. Yeah, I think, I think you'll see trends shift because what will happen very soon, I think, is... Um, I think a lot of people are going to leave the Rolex pool because remember not that long ago and in anyone's collecting journey, they go that requisite Rolex route and, you know, they, they've done such a great job in convincing you that every achievement should be commemorated with, with a crown. And so you kind of get out of debt, you leave the fossil behind, you buy a tag, <laughs> you work your way up, buy an Omega, what you pay for that Omega makes you sick for a while, but then that ice is broken. <laughs> and then you, you go to the Rolex and then you're like 10 Rolexes deep. And then you- This feels too real. Everyone, <laughs> you, you hate the fact that everyone has a Rolex. 
and then the, the the design strike you as boring and not innovative and and there's no uh, complications and then then you go other other routes and it's only been the last while my my respect for Rolex has come back I mean they've always been bulletproof amazing pieces that stand the test of time but the the way that they don't chase quarterly profits or don't have to chase quarterly profits I remember with Omega one of the things that upset me so much is when they first had the dark side of the moon and they had for the first time ever people paying full retail for an Omega at a time where you wouldn't dream of paying full retail for an Omega and I remember saying that you guys and they were rolling out the boutique model so you guys should make this boutique exclusive. You should hold back <laughs> supply, make it a halo piece, make people you know have to build a history to buy. This is your Daytona, and uh, and Ricard's like nodding. He's like, "Yeah, you're right, you're right." And then three months later, we got six of them, <laughs> you know, had, and they flood the market with them. And then now now they're selling for fifty percent of their original list price. But that's because that was probably a huge bonus for him that year because he had. It's all about quarterly profits and and um, impressing the board and, and hitting your quotas, whereas Rolex has never played that game. And so their respect for their brand to play that long game has kind of brought me back to Rolex. But I think what you'll find is a lot of people have always loved Rolex for that exclusionary idea. And before it used to be exclusionary because of the price. And then you saw a lot of overnight millionaires and and Bitcoin cash and fast cash. So then everyone had one. And then the, uh, the flex appeal got to be the fact that you, you could obtain one. So it was more about your access. Rolex still makes a million watches a year. And so I think that very soon yeah, there's going to be a glut of Rolex. And then the people who liked the fact that they could brag about getting one will no longer have those bragging rights. They're going to, they're going to leave the pool. The gray dealer sitting on a ton of stock that's going to have to let it out there. That's going to make it more um, more accessible. And and the minute that accessibility enters the picture, uh, I think that you're going to see a lot less of that Rolex craze. And then it's going to be about what else can you find that defines you as unique. And it's going to be those watches that very few people care about. And that's going to be the dress watches or, or some of these some of these dials that were, were forgotten about or brands that were forgotten about, and then they'll have their moment <laughs> and then it'll all, it'll all go in cycle again. But cause it's all, cause social currency has become the most valuable currency on earth. Never mind the U S dollar or, or Bitcoin. It, it's the social currency right now. And so if you have something that grants you points and for the longest time, it was a hot to get watch, um, you know, those things will cease to be valuable. And then, People will have to chase the next thing that gives them social currency. So there's a fascinating psychology. Well, I think we should form a consortium to uh, <laughs> leverage the brands away from Swatch Group. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll take we'll take uh, Breguet and Lamania, and yeah. you know, and, we'll, and Glashoot, buy, it's buy the whole thing. Glashoot too is uh, you wonder. That, that's a brand that's, that's gaining some traction, I think, because of Langa and not through anything that Swatch Group is, is doing. But again, that, that's a brand with so much potential. And, and I'm not sure Swatch Group knows what to do with it. They're doing, they're doing a nice job with Longines lately. Yeah. But I think you're exactly right. This was the feedback, Greg, that I got like on a back channel talk with um, Cam Weiss 
It was just like Swatch won't <laughs> let you know the mid and high level brands kind of compete with each other in in certain kind of uh, uh, core competencies. So as you say, RJ, you know Blancpain is now you know that's the annual calendar brand. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they're the ones that do the, the faces with the dials with all the holes in it and stuff, <laughs> you know, um, whereas any number of those brands could do these things and have a history of doing these things. But yeah, it's just always been a mystery to me in the, in maybe the past, say five to 10 years, why reggae doesn't have the traction that yeah. it could. I mean, I, I first remember reading about reggae or seeing the word reggae in, a piece of fiction that was written 200 years ago. You know, if you, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and and the amazing thing, the actual stories behind Louis Bergway, they're fantastic. I mean, that should be a Netflix miniseries of the life of Bergway because his, his whole life is, is so fascinating and, and he's so smart too. And, and the way he could come back, after the revolution, because he was supplying to their aristocracy. And then when everybody hated aristocracy, he came out and said, oh, I'm making watches for you guys now. And they, <laughs> and they accepted it. And he was the first to do like the Kickstarter type strategy and the subscription watch. And, and he sold it with the idea that I'm going to bring power to the people. These are the things they wanted me to make for them. And I hated it, and now I can make it for you. And they embraced it because, as much as everyone hated the aristocracy, they really wanted that position. It was just they resented what they had, not that they hated the idea. So it is fascinating the way he was able to pivot and had to escape at the time when they were raiding the cities and and killing some of the uh, the higher ups. So it was it was fascinating how and what compelled him to come back was really just. He wanted to make watches. <laughs> he wanted to get back to his studio. And so even though he was in hiding, he snuck back in so he could start making watches and turn that strategy into something successful. And then 200 years later, Hayek bought it for a dollar and now shitting on it every day. <laughs> but that, that'll be how it ends. But yeah, damn. I, think that, <laughs> I think that if, uh, you know, a little bit of marketing and all that really needs to do is put some strategically place it on the wrist of, of someone whose wrists are out there. And I think that's where at Rolex, because they were so effective in marketing, they got all that free advertising everywhere because it's on the wrists of people whose wrists are out there in public and they don't even have to pay to place it there. So I think some strategically placed uh, Breguet would go a long way, but again, they're not interested in investing. At the rate that Netflix is losing uh, subscribers, they, they might want to listen to you on, on some sort of content <laughs> development there. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it's, a great, uh, it's a great story, the, the Bergway story. Uh, Mary Antoinette, there, there's a lot of, and you could write in some fantastic sex scenes and orgies. <laughs> It'll be fantastic viewing. Right? Yeah. He, he's we like, might move hey, this hey, HBO hey. Max. We yeah. might move this from the HBO yeah. Max. I know you want to put me up against the wall, but any minute now, there's going to be this railroad thing and this telegraph thing. You're going to need timepieces for that. Yeah. <laughs> Power to people. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, hey, so uh, everybody. The, uh, the Anejo oh. is actually quite good this time around. <laughs> so, 
I literally was about to ask you, it's time to have a quick sip here. Are you going to pour something different? Hey, the first one, is that the one with the bell? Yeah. Well, they all, they all have the bell. So it's all, um, it's all about whether or not you can effectively do it. So you just have to uh, position it well enough. And uh, I think that was discovered by accident. <laughs> You're on. That's an extra añejo, the Grand Mayan, right? It's like the a, Grand Mayan is extra ultra age, mm-hmm. so extra añejo. But again, no details about what that really means. More than three years, uh, yeah. apparently. You know what barrels they used. Uh, who knows? But it is. Um, so I think I, the first time I tried it, there's so much that expectation that you bring that will that will change the way you feel about it and, and the way it tastes and the experience you have. So I think that tonight I had much lower expectations about it because I remember the first time trying it, not being uh, very impressed by it and feeling that there was just a bit too much wood, but um, no, it's actually, it's actually quite nice, especially after the, uh, the Azul. So then you get the, um, the, the context in which the extra aging provides. And so a little bit of that, a little bit of that oaky flavors is actually, you know, complementing the agave nicely. We have a we have a good friend, uh, uh, High West Saloon, and he has uh, what he calls the drunken Susan. So it's essentially a lazy Susan cup holder, you know, or, or glass holder. And his favorite thing to do is pour things and then just spin them around. Right? <laughs> you try to take away all the context, try and take away all the preconceived notions or expectations, yeah. and see you just what you like. Right. And I'm sure you guys talk about that with Sandy too. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, your ability to blind, you know, blind Mm -hmm. taste things, it it can really change, you know, maybe what you, what you went into expecting. (laughs) Greg, I'm, I'm having a brainstorm here, but it seems to me that maybe the next episode, we should have a four person episode with Jason K and RJ. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun. RJ, I'll give you a little bit of homework. If you go back into our back catalog, I don't know what episode it is, but I'll message you. We one of our earlier episodes, we had a guy who is a um he's a prominent attorney in Philadelphia. And he's a he's a not big into the watch scene, but he's big into watches. Like he's mm-hmm. he's got legit collection. Uh, but he's very into the tequila not just as a, a, a connoisseur consumer, but into the culture and the preservation. And he's gone so far as to establish a, a, a foundation to support at the grassroots Ooh. level in Mexico, kind of the, the tequila culture. Um, that guy ruined me for big bottle yeah. tequila <laughs> and in, in the best possible way. But it was one of the most educational things is, you know, making this guy's acquaintance, um, I have a feeling you'd get along famously with this guy. He's a, he's basically, he's our age, you know, and, um, kind of similar life experiences and stuff like that. But his, he's so knowledgeable and so passionate. And after doing, you know, an hour long episode with him, I was sitting there like a zombie, like, yeah, (laughs) I will no more, you know, Cuervo. And it is, and it's completely the scales fell away from my eyes. I think that would be a lot of fun actually. Because he'd probably answer a lot of your questions. I bet uh-huh. he knows a lot of that stuff. Tequila. Yeah. It, it's oh, funny yeah. though, like what, what you mentioned about him, some of these guys who love watches, but at the face value. You know, and, and like I said, I was a studio art major before. So for me to appreciate a piece of art also involves knowing who the artist was and the social context in which he painted it and the medium and why and the motivations and what was going on in the world 
and how all those forces came together to to produce this piece. And other people just like the colors and and uh, and like how it looks and and it speaks to them, you know, very emotionally and, and deeply. But you know, for me, that uh, it's funny because, like I said, there's a lot of people who love watches have no idea who Hayek is or that Swatch Group owns these guys. And, and so it's, it's an interesting, different perspective to, to hear those guys talk about watches compared to um, some of the rest of us. Yeah. Right. It's like, who's willing to do the deep dive? <laughs> yep. Yep. And, well, and the way we, necessary? Yeah. The way we deep dive on watches, this guy is uh, deep dives on, on the tequila mezcal thing. Yeah, sounds sounds like a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd like it him to uh, sort of like the 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 person who's like only uh, indie watches now, right? Like only <laughs> independent, right? And so that's a a parallel. Yep, because the more you learn, you you appreciate it on so many different levels. I remember the first time talking to to Sandy, who'd be another great guy to to have on. It would. You just go back and try some of these bottles, and you you taste them with a, a different mindset and you pick up on things that you didn't even know were there and things that he, he teaches you to start to look for and appreciate. And so it becomes more of a, um, an effort to make that mind body connection and get in touch with, with your senses. And, and the best part about all that is that there's no wrong answer. <laughs> like he says, if you taste, if you taste, uh, anise or Zambuca, it's there. No one can tell you what your perceptory sensories behave like. So what does an apple taste like to you? So it's, it's whatever you feel is there is actually there. It's just a question of, can you slow it down and then make connections to things you've tasted or experienced in the past? Yeah, that's spot on. That's spot on. It's, it's, it's drink what you like. You know, if you have the the time and the energy and the, and the passion to deep, deep dive into it and learn more about it, you, you might expand that. But drink what you like, you know, and it's there's some there's obviously a lot of subjectiveness to it. And um, and then, like you said, just sort of the welcomeness of the communities that you're in and then, you know, being able to sort of, you know, geek out on it together. That's what makes <laughs> it, I think, the, the funnest part of it all. Yeah, totally. Well, we'll, we'll probably come back and ask you. So um, I've had some communication with Sandy. He's been kind enough to suggest you know, a few bottles, or if I've had questions about a particular bottle, he's like, yeah, get that one. I'll literally, <laughs> you know, send him a picture, you know, of what I see on the shelf. Like this, that one is this and this and this. anything that he might've had a hand in blending. That's kind of fun, but I don't know yeah. him. So that would yeah. be fun to have him on the, uh, on the podcast. Well, we yeah. are pushing an hour right now. Yeah, I would like to ask you one last question, <laughs> yeah. just because we we haven't talked about wine at all, and I'd be curious if you if you could build for yourself, let's say a decent length trip, like ten days mm. to two weeks. Money's no object. Yeah. Any any wine destination in the world, where would you want to go? Honestly, um, I'd go back to California because it. it I mean. California, I think the best red wines in the world. And I used to be such a, a European wine snob. And I used to think Italy and Italian Amarone and, and then some French and Tuscan and, and like that, the terroir and the age. But we were in Napa a few years ago, pre-COVID. 
And it was just absolutely amazing. The only, the only hard part is, like you say, you need time. Like we were very ambitious. We, we rented the, um, the driver and we tried to hit like four, four in a day, which is a lot. <laughs> and then you learn the strategy after a while because you each, uh, there's, you know, we went, my wife and I, another couple, we each pay for our own tasting. And then you realize that after a while, if you just start to make conversation <laughs> with, with, the, uh, with the person behind the bar, all of a sudden, and if they feel that you're into it or they recognize that you're appreciating or inquisitive, they will just keep grabbing bottles for you to taste and take you through each tasting. But I think that there's very few things better than a, a good California cab have. And so it's, um, it's become our, our favorite, our favorite wine producing nation in the world. And it, um, and, and Napa and, is is a fun city. I mean, doesn't quite compare to Tuscany and Florence, but uh, I think I would definitely spend a few weeks touring all of all of the vineyards because those tiny ones are are the best experiences, and those are ones you can't get at the um, the local liquor store or the LCBO, and then they never import them in, and you get to actually talk to the the owners and the winemakers, and you know, and their passion for it just rubs off on you. And, and it's tougher to get that in, in Europe and especially with the language barrier and whatnot. So it, it's just a totally different experience when, when you're down there. So I, I just love California Reds. I think that is the approved answer. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So I, just by way of background, I think people who listen probably, because I've mentioned this a few times and Greg obviously knows, I have a brother-in-law who's a... Um, He's a trained winemaker. He went to one of the big programs here in California. And um, up until, yeah, maybe like 10 years ago, it's an interesting story medically. I'll, I'll yeah. tell you this story sometime because it's it's an interesting case. But he ended up selling his uh, his winery. He had a winery. They still have vineyard property. So my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they you know live on this property. But just over the years, you know, knowing them for 25 years and just, you know, drinking with him and tasting with him and being kind of educated by him and dragged up and down the central coast. They're in the central coast, not in Napa. So, which isn't, uh, I think that would be a real revelation to you if you ever have an opportunity to travel. Cause as much as Napa is like the adult Disneyland for people yeah. who are, you know, if you're in that bon vivant kind of thing, the central coast of California. So north of Santa Barbara, if you can picture this on the map, north of Santa Barbara, but south of say Monterey, there's this huge swath of land and there's all these different terroir and, and viticultural areas. And some of them kind of match up pretty well to what you'd expect, you know, on the continent. And some do, you know, uh, uh, Rhone style wines really well. Um, Zinfandel is huge here and some of it, some of it is really, you know, kind of crappy, but a lot of it is very good. Uh, and then of course, Napa is, you know, kind of bordeaux is, you know, mm -hmm. and less so yep. as you go further North, but, um, there's so much great stuff here. I actually, I'm, I'm stoked to hear you say that if you ever <laughs> make it out here, it, yeah. you know, to, to do that again. And if you ever have the opportunity to do Central Coast, I will, I'll write you like a to the minute itinerary that will take you to like 20 of the best, most eye-opening places. Super cool. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Zinfandel, that's, that's a brand that, that's a grape that needs a, a PR manager. That and Brigway, they should get together. <laughs> Zinfandel, yeah. 
has been destroyed by white zin. <laughs> and, uh, that is such a powerful grape, and especially California zin is one of the most masculine, <laughs> heavily bodied, flavorful, spicy varietals. And and nobody will will look at a Zinfandel because all they think about is is white zin. I'll tell you what, oh, if that wasn't a- the most, if that wasn't the most spirit of time podcast on brand, you know, take, you know, that, that the Zinfandel grape and Breguet need a PR manager. That, that is peak spirit Turn of time. Together. Yeah. Actually, one of, one of the best producers of California Zinfandel is a guy on the central coast. I won't mention his name, but he's a, um, before he went into, into wine, he's a, uh, an emergency room physician and he's got a, a you know, pretty heavy kind of uh, biochemistry background. And that guy does really, really good Zinfandel. And when you look at the ABV on the bottle, you're like, nope, nope, that is not for me. Nope. But when you open it, let it breathe, pour it. It's like, it's just artistry in a glass. It is amazing with, you know, a really good pizza, a hamburger, some pasta, whatever you want to do. What's the ABV? Uh, any, Oh, like 15s, 15s. Yeah. yeah, Like an Amarone. It's a, yeah, yeah, sometimes you get a little too much alcohol burn when there's when there's that much, but yeah, it's it's hot, but it's not the kind of thing. Once it's once it's open, especially if it's not like a hundred degree weather, you know, where it's just increasing the volatility to your nose, mm. um, it's super enjoyable. But there's a lot like that. But again, there's also a lot that is kind of crappy. So there's a you got to you know wheat and chaff and all of that. All right, better let Greg get off to his uh, festivities. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> well, RJ, it's been a pleasure. I hope you'll do this again. Um, and you know, it's it's fantastic. I, again, I'm still for people who can't watch this. I've got the the absolute shit eating grin on based on <laughs> RJ's answer about California wine. I'm like, yes. You know, we might if we do it again, we might even like do a shared um, you know flight, whether it's a couple reds or yeah. you know even a couple uh, uh, whiskeys. I mean, I, they're scotches. I mean, there's a way we could do this pretty fun, I think, and and uh, you know maybe share a few tastes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, well, in a minute here, I'm going to hit the stop button, but RJ, stay on and I'll tell you, you know, off offline, you know, who that producer is and I'll, I'll do a little bit of looking and see if there's any way to get it shipped to you. Fantastic. Perfect. Well, hey, Greg, I think it's about time to let you go. And we are, because we are kind of up against it. Maybe we save our recommendations for next week, unless you really want to drop something. No, definitely. This has been great fun. This has uh, exceeded our expectations. It's uh, I love interacting with RJ on on Instagram, but being able to sit across you know the the screen and actually have a conversation has been just fantastic. So thanks for taking the time, man. It's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks a lot, guys. I tell you what, I'm going to raise a glass. I've got the uh, the last of my beer. I too transitioned to this uh, this Harland Hazy IPA. Guys, take care. This will be our last sip. Cheers. Cheers. hope you enjoyed the episode don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice it really does help you can find us on instagram at spirit of time podcast and contact us at spirit of time podcast at gmail.com as always please drink responsibly thanks again for listening we'll see you next time